So, over the last few weeks, we've been, um, we've been looking at some really important subjects together. Uh, we've looked at uh, fear, we've looked at guilt, we've looked at shame, these three great adversaries that so often crowd our heart and prevent us from truly walking in what it is that we just sung about, being children of the living God. So often our hearts are so overwhelmed by fear, guilt, and shame that we, that we can't fully engage in the, in the truth of, of those statements that we've just sung. And then last week, we looked somewhat at this scarcity mentality that seems to so often inhabit the minds of Christians really around the world, but particularly as we think of ourselves here in the United States, in the West, and of course, right here in Dayton. And as we, as we looked at that scarcity spirit, we recognized that the scarcity spirit can be, in some ways, in our human endeavor, sought to be overcome, either by the acquisition of wealth, or by cleaving and clinging to the worries of the world. And so, the acquisition of wealth and worry are the things that, that are, if you like, the mechanisms by which we respond to this scarcity mentality. And we, we recognised that last week, what we need to do is not look back to scarcity and, and how it is that from the fall and from our loss of all of the abundance of the garden, we're still grieving the loss of that abundance as we, as we struggle with this scarcity spirit. Instead of being drawn backwards, caused to, to try to come up with our own solutions, acquisition of wealth and worry, we're encouraged by Jesus to look forward to the coming kingdom to expect that the kingdom that will be fully manifest and consummated here on earth is seen daily as we pray, Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we looked last week at this, at this understanding of, of turning away from the past and looking towards the future and living in the attitude, the 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 mental awareness, the spiritual orientation that draws us toward heaven. Because of course, the truth of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is that actually our lives are not defined by the past. Our lives are actually defined by the future because the world is careening towards its catastrophic conclusion. The world is careening towards the consummation of God's plans when the day of judgment will come. And those who are not children of God will find themselves continuing in a world, in, a, in an existence, in a, in a place that the New Testament describes as like the fiery, steaming, smoking waste heaps that were found in the valley of Hinon, Gehenna. We'll find ourselves living that existence because it's an existence that is the natural consequence of people who have committed themselves to a, to a, to a self-centered and a self-serving life and lifestyle. But for those who are children of the living God, the heaven that he has prepared, the new world, the new order, the new creation that is already emerging among us and, and the whole of creation, Paul tells us, is on tiptoes longing to see the full consummation of all that God has planned for his children, that place, that existence, that life will be ours eternally. 
And so actually, looking back rather than looking forward is really a fool's errand because the future is what defines humanity. The question this morning is, how do we live with our hearts trained on the future? How do we live daily with an inner orientation towards all that God has prepared for his children? How do we live, as Paul describes it, as more than conquerors? This morning, we're going to begin to unpack this most important of subjects in the New Testament. It's a subject that is really one of the undergirding themes of Luke's writing. You see it emerging in the life of Jesus as we more and more begin to see him as our model and our mentor. And then as we see the first disciples leading out the movement of Jesus into the Acts of the Apostles, we see this life orientated towards the future, living with a different perspective and attitude than the world around them. We begin to see that more and more in the life of the early disciples and at the heart of it is an understanding that we live in the power and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at that from the perspective of what it is that Jesus talks about here in Acts chapter 12. Now, we're not going to look into all of the passages towards the end of the chapter. There's whole sections on interpreting the times and being watchful as servants of Jesus and not finding ourselves drawn into the things that the gravity of our sin would cause us to be drawn into. We're going to look right at the very beginning of the chapter again and see what it is that Jesus says there that is setting our course and, and focusing our sight and causing our hearts to be drawn in the correct direction. So join me as I read from Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Jesus is beginning to introduce something that will be fully articulated in the lives of the disciples by the time Jesus is ascending into heaven and the Holy Spirit is sent upon those first company of believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He's introducing the necessity for the disciples to learn how to lean on the Holy Spirit and learn from the Holy Spirit. In fact, the very use of the word will teach, the word teach indicates that in the same way that he has been the rabbi to them, so the Holy Spirit will be the rabbi of the disciples in the future. John, when he's recording the last discourse of Jesus in John chapters 13 through 17 tells us, particularly in the latter part of those chapters, just before his high priestly prayer in, in chapter 17, he tells us that Jesus was preparing the hearts and the minds of the disciples 
to understand that in the same way that he had been one who had come alongside them in their journey of faith, teaching and instructing them that the Holy Spirit would be another who would come alongside. The word in Greek, to come alongside, is the word parakletos, one who will speak to you. Kletos, one who will come alongside para. So this is, this is a person who will come alongside and speak, as it were, into your ear and guide and direct you. And Jesus says, he'll lead you into all truth. Now this is an enormously important subject and a subject that we as evangelicals have struggled to engage with. It's been, it's been a struggle for us who maybe cleave to a denominational identity of being a Baptist. We've struggled with these things and we're gonna address those at the end of the message today. But right now, Let's look at what it is that the Lord would want to direct our gaze towards as we consider what it must have been like for those first disciples to hear these words and understand that Jesus was wanting to prepare them for something that was inevitable. He was lifting their gaze from where they were. He was turning their heads away from the past and he was directing their, their hearts and minds toward the future. And as he did that, the great consummation of the ages, of course, was there on the horizon. But as so often with the prophetic looking towards the future, both in the scriptures and in your own experience of the prophetic ministry, the prophetic ministry really gives us all of, if you like, the signs that we can see on the horizon, but we have no sense of how far they are apart. I used to, as a, as a pastor in uh, England, used to, I used to climb the clock tower in my old parish church and go and pray for the community because I could see all of them from up there. And, um, and when, you, when you got up there, you could see for maybe 100 miles because of the hills around Sheffield, you could see for miles and miles and miles and miles. And one of the things that was very obvious was when you looked at the horizon and you knew what these locations were because you could get in your car and drive to them if you wanted to, there was no way of discerning the distance between them. You know, you'd see a power station with the smoke coming out of the chimney stacks and then you'd see a, a, a village church and then you'd see a community and then you'd see a forest and then you... But there's no way of knowing the distance between them. It's only when you got closer to them that you realized that the distance was really quite considerable. And so one of the things that the disciples had to learn and one of the things that we have to learn is first of all, as Jesus says at the end of this gospel, that it's not for us to understand or to know the exact time when the Father has set for the end of the ages. Our task is to be ready to walk with the attitude and the intensity that draws us toward that day. Because we don't know. We don't know how to fully interpret what it is the Father's. In fact, Jesus said that even he did not know. So if Jesus doesn't know, I don't care where you watch on the internet, they don't know either. Yeah? But of course, the things that were being shared with the disciples are all telescoped together. And so, and so the persecution that they faced as they're dragged before authorities, brought before synagogue rulers, and the last days when Jesus will return, they all seem to be right there on the same horizon. But of course, there's a great distance between them. But the preparation is the same. In other places where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he's clearly making a differentiation in the minds of the people who are listening to him that there's a difference between having a critique of what it is that he's saying and choosing 
to identify the good things that Jesus is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit as evil. And actually, if you're prepared to turn the good things that Jesus is doing by the power of the Spirit into evil things, it's impossible for you to to know God in that state. You can't be a person that will be one who receives and engages with forgiveness because you're completely lost. And on this occasion where Jesus speaks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, of course, he's referencing that that he's already spoken about earlier on in the gospel. But he's also saying, you know, the Holy Spirit is way more important than you think he is. And so don't make light of this. You can even make light of me. But don't make light of the Holy Spirit because you need the Holy Spirit because when you're dragged before the authorities and the rulers and the synagogues, he's the one who's going to instruct you and teach you and lead you and disciple you and train you in what you need. Okay? All good? So, let me just think of a way to present this. For those of you living in radio land, I'm uh, just going to the whiteboard now and you're, you're missing it. So I put a couple of semicircles up here and I put heaven at the top and I put the world at the bottom. And here are you and I. This is just the, the line of our progress through time. Now what Jesus wants us to understand is that the gravity of our own fallenness and the gravitational pull of the world in its self-centeredness and in its self-serving desire will draw you towards the world and away from the future that God has designed for you. But Jesus wants us to understand that there is another way that we can be drawn towards heaven, that we can be drawn towards the future. And the way that that happens, of course, is that we receive what heaven offers us, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say and the Holy Spirit will draw you towards heaven and away from the gravity of what the New Testament calls simply sin. So let's look at it together, shall we? The, um, the German word for interpretation is hermeneutics. I always thought it was because the guy was called Hermann and uh, his surname was Newtick, but it's not that. It's just the German word for interpretation. And we're gonna look at two, we're gonna look at two forms of interpretation this morning. We're gonna look at biblical interpretation and we're gonna look at Jesus interpretation. So we're going to look at how to understand what it is that Jesus is saying by going to the scriptures and then we're going to understand what Jesus is saying by going to the story of Jesus and saying, if Jesus said these things, what was it in his experience that he was talking about? Does that make sense to everybody? One's called the biblical hermeneutic, the other one's called the Jesus hermeneutic. So we're all gonna be great theologians at the end of this talk. Is everybody good with that? Wow. Sounds like everybody's desperately enthusiastic about that idea. <laughs> the point, of course, is this. The point, of course, is this. Is that by the end we begin to discover our wings. By the end, we begin to flap those wings. By the end, we find ourselves flying and maybe even soaring on the winds of the Spirit, drawn away from the gravity of the earth, 
There's a lot of difference between a turkey and an eagle. And so many Christians live their life as turkeys. There may be the odd occasion where they run like Billio and just get about two feet off the ground. But the destiny and the calling of the children of God is to soar on the winds of the Spirit and to know that we are free to live as children of God before we see the final consummation of the ages. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. So how does that happen? Well, if we look at the end of the gospel, we discover what it is that Jesus begins to identify as the process by which the disciples will be able to do this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24 and verse 48. Look what it says. Look what it says. You are witnesses of these things. Now, the disciples have heard way back in chapter 12, a whole half of the gospel back, that the Holy Spirit will help them to be witnesses. And so he says, you are my witnesses. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city, they were in Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. So, to be a witness, you need power. Everybody agree with that? Yeah. On the shelf, yeah? Okay. So to be a witness, to be a witness, we need power. Look with me to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. And verse eight. Now this is the continuation of the same conversation that Jesus is having, but Luke chooses to put it in volume two. Volume one is just about finished when he gets to verse 48 of, of chapter 24. Of course, he's not writing in chapters and verses they were put in later. But now in volume two, he wants to elucidate the conversation that's going on between the disciples and Jesus, of course, in verse six, if you just look back there, they're just like all the rest of us who are trolling around on the internet trying to find out the date of the return of Jesus. Verse six, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you, that's us, disciples, but you. So don't worry about that stuff. Worry about this stuff. Don't focus there, focus here. But you will receive what? will receive what? When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my what? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, what area, just some area. And you've got to keep quick with it, you know, you've got to. Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we need power to function as witnesses. Everybody in agreement. Now, that's what you call a biblical hermeneutic. What we did there is we said, okay, Jesus said something and Luke recorded it for us. So is there anywhere else that Luke records from the sayings of Jesus that helps us to understand what Jesus was saying? And so we went first to Luke, and then we went to the Acts of the Apostles, written by the same writer. And so now, 
we understand what Jesus means when he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Because the Holy Spirit will empower the disciples to be witnesses in each of those situations. Agreed? Great. So now we ask, okay, how do we get started with all of this? Because obviously, the narrative of the first disciples is not our narrative. We're not living in Jerusalem. We're not waiting for a few more days in prayer and fasting in an upper room for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're not, that's not our narrative. We have a different narrative, yeah? But of course, Jesus is our model and our guide. And so we use the Jesus hermeneutic and we say, okay, we've got the basic terms of reference. When Jesus says the Holy Spirit will teach you, that means that the Holy Spirit will empower us to be witnesses. How then did it work for Jesus? Now, the reason we ask this is because, of course, Jesus continues to be our model. Jesus continues to be our guide. And Jesus made it absolutely clear in his ministry that he was not simply functioning as the Son of God among us. In fact, the more common reference was the Son of Man. What Jesus was, was trying to get his disciples to understand was that he was functioning here on earth in precisely the same way that he wanted them to function. Because in that way, we could make a connection from his life to our life and actually have a picture of what it is that we're supposed to do. Yeah? Now that's a big step for a lot of people because they look at the life of Jesus and they say, well, obviously it's irrelevant to me because he's the son of God and I can't do that stuff. Not so. Not so. Jesus says, if you have faith in me, then you will do what I've been doing. And then he really ruins our day. <laughs> and you'll do greater things. Are you kidding? Greater things? Because I go to the Father. And you're like, yeah, whatever. Because it's just too much for us, you see. But, but that's because we assume that we know better than him. We assume that, well, he kind of possibly meant it. He was probably just being kind of a more enthusiastic. <laughs> but obviously he did mean it. And obviously the first disciples lived it. So, if we're supposed to do the things that Jesus did, we probably ought to go back and find out how he did them. What about that as a thought? Yeah? Okay. Now, we've been walking together through... The Gospel of Luke. Now, I know some of you are kind of being drawn by the Lord just in recent weeks, and so you don't know what we said. But fortunately for you, it's right there in the Bible. So in chapter three, in chapter three, Jesus comes for baptism. We looked at that together, and we recognize that the Son of God functioning as the Son of Man among us, fully God, but fully human, was fully embracing his humanity and saying, this is something I need to do to identify with you so that you can identify with me. And so he fully identifies with us and he's baptised by John in the Jordan. And at the moment he's praying, he comes out of the water. The sky is torn open and a dove descends upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in the bodily form of a dove. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With you I'm very pleased. Now we've looked at what it means to be a child of God and how those words are supposed to resonate in our hearts because we are the children of God and God loves us and he's very pleased with us. And if we're in Jesus, then everything that the Father said to Jesus, he says to us. 
But Jesus is beginning his ministry. And Jesus needs the Holy Spirit. How about that? So why are you starting your ministry without asking for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit? Do you think that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before this? He's the second person of the Trinity. Of course he's got the Holy Spirit. But there's something different, isn't there? There's an outpouring. There's a, there's a filling. Luke chapter four, verse one. Find it if you want to. If you've got your Bible right there or nudge your neighbour and say, go on, find it. Luke chapter four, verse one. Jesus is taken by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, into the wilderness. And so we know what happened at the baptism. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And he, he needed to be filled with the Spirit to begin his ministry. Why do we begin our ministry and not ask God to fill us with his spirit? Why? I don't know. Maybe we're just silly or something. Maybe we just don't get it. Maybe we just don't understand it. But if Jesus needed to be filled to start his ministry, I promise you I do. I promise you every Sunday when I'm there, and Sally's putting her hand on my back. She's not just saying, well done, sweetie. You did a great job in preparing. It's gonna be fine today. She's not doing that. She's praying for me. She's going, oh God, please fill him with the Spirit because he's, <laughs> he's gonna be terrible and he's gonna be awful all day. <laughs> today I said to her, I'm, I'm struggling a bit. You need to pray for me. So she prayed she pray for me. Because... I can't do it unless I'm full of the Spirit. Can you? Can you or not? So Jesus can't begin his ministry without being filled with the Spirit. Now in the, in the wilderness... It's about 13 verses in the wilderness in, in Luke chapter four. We have the three temptations. We've looked at those together. Appetite, approval, ambition. We've looked at those temptations at great length together in these last months. We see how those temptations work and how Jesus again is embracing the realities of human nature to overcome those temptations that are the principal temptations of our life so that we have a model, a guide, an understanding of where it is that we're to look to and get to. But the way that Jesus functions in the wilderness is to do two things. To rely upon the identity that the Father has declared at his baptism. Because the devil says, if you are the Son of God. And so Jesus stands on his identity. And Jesus stands on the Holy Scriptures. I mean, not particularly popular portions of Scripture. I mean, Deuteronomy, who reads that? It's like this weird book in the Old Testament. You're like, I don't know, I mean... Do I really need to know whether a mother is milk is going to be used to boil a goat? I mean, I don't know. Because you're reading, you're thinking, I, it's a bit kind of foreign to me. But this was clearly the, the portion of scripture that Jesus was reading in his daily readings, and that was the scripture that he used. Chapter 8, mostly. It's fascinating, isn't it? He stood on scripture and he stood on his identity. His identity and the word gave him a firm footing and he overcame the trials and the temptations of the enemy. And this is what it says right after the wilderness. Jesus, in the power of the spirit, returned to Galilee. So being full is only the beginning. 
being filled with power happens in this moment of engagement with the realities of our life and choosing to stand in our identity and on the precious gift of God's word. And as we stand there, the spirit who fills us now empowers us. Isn't that awesome? And the reason that filling becomes empowering is because the channels through which the infilling of the Spirit becomes the outflow of His power is the understanding that you are the child of God representing the Father here in this situation right now and that the Word of God is always true, that the Word of God is always effective and that the Word of God is able right now to be the sword of the Spirit as you speak it out, his power will be made manifest. This is what happened for Jesus. Jesus begins in his baptism. He goes into the wilderness and there he settles his identity and his trust in the scriptures. So that's why together, over these months, we've regularly returned to this whole thing about our identity. We've regularly returned to the need to stand on the Scriptures. Because in these, we have the channels where filling becomes overflowing. Is this working? Everybody with me? Do you get it? The filling becomes what? Turn to your neighbour and say, the filling becomes overflowing. Tell them. Turn around and tell the people behind you now. Go on, tell the people behind. I don't think they got it. So this is what, so this is what, Jesus, this is what Jesus did, okay? So this is the beginning of his ministry. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the discipline of his ministry. Luke 5, 16. We've got all the note takers in here. Write it down. Luke 5, 16. But Jesus did what? Often, what's the word? Withdrew to where? Lonely places. And what? Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And then what you read right next, because of course Luke is not writing in chapters and verses and he's definitely not got the ESV or the NIV headings in his mind. The next thing you have is Jesus in a gathering in Peter's house and the, and the power of the Lord was present to heal. Do you see that? The power of the Lord was present to heal. I mean, how does anybody know that? I'll tell you how. By walking with the Spirit and learning what He's saying and what He's indicating. So how do we get started? We get started by looking at the life of Jesus and saying, Jesus had a pattern of withdrawing to pray and he's withdrawing to lonely places. The word is eremos, the dry place. In other words, the wilderness. So, so in the mind of Jesus, where he began is where he returns and that returning place is a return to his identity, is a return to the word, is a return to being filled so that he can overflow regularly, all the time. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it has to be ideal for us. And so now this becomes the pattern of our life. We withdraw from time to time, we step back and we say, Lord, I'm going to just wait on you. 
I'm gonna ask you to remind me of my identity. I'm gonna ask you to help me embrace it afresh, that I am your child and that I am entirely dependent upon you. But as well as being dependent upon you, I am your representative. And so I stand on your word as the means by which I understand who I am and understand what it is that you wanna do. And so I'm gonna live this way. I'm gonna stand on my identity. I'm gonna stand on the word. And as we do that, that solid place becomes the place not only of filling, but of overflowing. Now, the way that we learn to fly is we take this understanding, this, this way of looking and we go to the rest of the scriptures. Now, if we turn to Galatians 5, verse 16, it'll say something like this, depending on which translation you have, it'll say, walk by the Spirit, or it'll say, live by the Spirit. The best translation is not the one I've got here. The old translation, the King James Version says walk. The word in Greek is peripetetai. It means to walk. Why walk? So I say walk by the Spirit, says the Apostle Paul. Walk by the Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying this. In the Old Testament, the people who knew God were described as those who walk with God. In the Gospels, the people who followed Jesus were people who walked with Jesus. In the epistles, the people who are disciples of Jesus are people who walk by the Spirit. Get it? It's the same thing. We're being discipled by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, if you walk this way, your life will be utterly transformed. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You're not gonna be drawn into the gravity of your sinful nature or the gravitational field of the world if you walk by the Spirit. Because if you walk by the Spirit, something else happens. Look at verse 22. You know all these verses as well as I do. But the outflow, what's the fruit? What's fruit? It's the outgrow, it's the, it's the overflow of the plant. There's the root and the shoot and the fruit. And we've already talked about the root being our identity and the word. And now the shoot is of course walking that way every day. And the fruit is the overflow. It is the manifestation of what is true within. There are no apple trees that grow oranges. Their identity is set. Your identity is set. And as the children of God, the overflow of your life as you walk with the Spirit is actually the manifestation of God's Spirit here on earth. And what does it look like? It looks like love. It looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What a glorious day that would be. This is the way we fly. This is how we become eagles and not turkeys. So what's stopping us? Well, we've gone 10 seconds over. I guess and next week we're on to chapter 13, so okay, we better pray and just go out. 
Are we good for another few minutes? Okay. So what's stopping us? Well, I'll tell you some of the things that stop me. Yeah? Denominational baggage. May as well start with the big one to begin with, eh? (laughs) Denominational baggage. I grew up and people said, we're not like those people. It was a kind of a classist kind of statement, indicating that it was these poor, foolish, vulnerable people that ran around full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, after all, we're evangelicals. We don't need all that stuff. And then the Lord reminded me of my mother's Christmas presents. My mother was an enigmatic person. Sally's smiling because she's saying, yeah, that's, she's at least enigmatic. <laughs> and one of her enigmas was, she was incredibly generous with the gifts that she brought you at Christmas, but she saved the Christmas paper every year. And she saved the Christmas cards. She used to cut the back off them and then reuse them. I mean, she's well off. Who else had, a, had Christmas paper where you got the scotch tape marks from the previous year? Anybody, anybody else had that? There's a lot of you, isn't there? I mean, I had some that, she would literally say to me, be careful how you're unwrapping that. I mean, as I got older now, you know, we, had, we used to just put a big bin liner in the room and just say, just tear it off. We're liberated from the scarcity of the past. But I could still hear my mother saying, careful how you unwrap that. Don't tear it. I put that scotch tape on there only lightly so you could pull it off easily. Where is the, yeah, I know, yeah. So, (laughs) so here's this generous woman with this weird kind of scarcity mentality, yeah? And here's the thing. If I'd have judged the gift by the wrapping, I'd have never received it. If I'd have judged the gift of the Spirit by the wrapping of the people who are full of the Spirit, I'd never receive it because they're all bonkers. (laughs) From my point of view as a kind of staid Englishman, I'm not allowed to do stuff like that. What are you doing? You're raising your hands? What? Do you know what your pockets are for? (laughs) So anybody else witness to denominational baggage? Two people in the whole room. (laughs) Three people. Denominational baggage, bad theology. Bad theology. Okay, here's bad theology. I, I don't do polemic. I don't go after people. It's just unpleasant and unnecessary and it's not what the Lord wants. But bad theology is this. The Holy Scriptures have replaced the Holy Spirit. That is so stupid. It, it, just, it, it just defies logic. How could that possibly be the case? There is no evidence for that in Scripture. There is no more perfect way that is identified by the fact that we now no longer need the gifts of the Spirit. What we need now is just the Holy Scriptures. There's no trinity that says God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Scriptures. There's no, there's no trinity that says God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Catholic Church. There's only one trinity and they are co-equal and they are co-eternal and they are all needed denominational baggage, bad theology, fear, guilt, and shame. Fear, guilt, and shame. 
And finally, opportunity. I was talking to the elders on Thursday. We have a kind of Bible study together on Thursdays. And uh, one of the elders was saying, you know, the thing that we need to really press into and learn together is how to walk in the power of the Spirit. So this is, this is coming kind of from the top, yeah? This is what we need. And so there's not going to be a lack of opportunity anymore, I don't believe. So if you've got a ministry this week, anybody got a ministry this week? Every hand in the house should be raised right there. Yeah, anybody got a ministry this week? Yeah. So if you've got a ministry this week, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't you? If you've got a ministry this week, you've got to go from filling to overflowing. Amen? This week. And if this is not a familiar experience or practice for you, then we've got to get into it, don't we? Now, honestly, I promise you, I'm not suggesting that we all get weird and, you know, boxes of snakes and all that kind of stuff. I'm not, there's nowhere near that. That's not anything that Jesus was talking about. It's just the way that Jesus lived. And so you and I have to become much more familiar with the third person of the Trinity. And so what we will do as we complete our time together here in worship is just to give opportunity to the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh, to empower us for ministry and mission this week. And if you want to articulate that desire for the Spirit to fill you afresh, maybe because Today, for the first time, you've realized that you are a child of God or that you desire to be a child of God, maybe for the first time filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to articulate that desire to be filled with the Spirit for ministry and mission this week, to be filled not only with the Spirit, but overflowing with the Spirit so that your life can be a transformative force in the world, then come forward in the singing of our last song. Chris, are you gonna come up and lead and I'll get rid of the big whiteboard. Let's stand together. Let's be getting our hearts ready, even as the team come. And let's be, um, let's be getting our minds in a place, our hearts in a place, ready to receive what the Lord wants to do today, which is to fill us with his spirit. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's definitely necessary for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you made it so clear that we need to be filled with power to be your witnesses. May you come with power today, Lord. Fill us afresh. Anoint us anew and equip us, Lord, for what it is that we will be called to do on your behalf this day and through this week. We pray it, Jesus, in your name and all God's people say.